the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. Woo, has there never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. We love having their sponsorship. Coming up, David Marcus an incredible writer. And if you haven't heard of him, you're going to want to. Oh, does he have a lot to say about COVID? For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Welcome to Sideline Sanity, Michelle Tafoya with you. I'm I'm always interested in finding people's whose writing I really enjoy. And I said finding people's, but that's okay. You know what I meant. Finding people whose writing I really enjoy. And I found another one. His name is David Marcus. And you can find him on Twitter at Blue Box Dave. What does Blue Box mean? I, that I could, I couldn't figure out yet. Yeah. So, uh, before I became a journalist, I was, I was in theater. Um, and I was a co-producer of a theater company that was called Blue Box Productions. Ah. And that was, that was when I got a Twitter handle was when I was still doing that. So. As I transitioned into journalism, I just never changed my Twitter handle. So it's a you know, weird little mystery out there. But that's the answer. Oh, it is. It's good. Well, here's the question. When you were producing and before you became a writer, did you have that blue check next to your Twitter name or did you oh, no. get it? <laughs> there we go. No, no. That took me a long time. <laughs> well, it's well-deserved. Uh, this morning, you caught my attention on Twitter because – I was watching the procession of the late Queen Elizabeth II going from uh, Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall. And it was really, it was, you know, the British do this very well. And then when they entered Westminster Hall, this choral music, there's just these beautiful voices were singing. And it's, it, it sounds angelic is the, the way to, to describe it for me. And you tweeted out, Nothing really compares to the stunning emotional power of choral music, perhaps the oldest form of human artistic expression. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but why did it, why did it move you? I mean, it always, it always has. Um, I, I was in a, in a choir in high school and it was a, at my high school, the choir was kind of like a big deal. It was like the football, well, we didn't have a football team, but the, the choir, <laughs> you know, sort of travel internationally and was, was sort of um, sort of a big deal. And, you know, for me, when when we would get when we would leave sectionals, right, like I'd be in the tenor or baritone or whatever it was, and you'd just be working on your part. That moment when all of the sections come together and you hear this chord, um, whether you're in the audience or or even better, one of the people who's sort of involved in making that sound, 
it's just an, it's an extraordinary sound. I mean, it's just, yeah. there's no musical instrument that really compares yeah. to it. And so, and those guys, obviously, I mean, that's, they're, they're world-class singers. It was just yeah. stunningly beautiful. It is. What, what high school? It was a Germantown Friends School in Philadelphia. Okay. Wow. That's really, that's, you think Philly and I, and I think Pennsylvania and I think football. So it's interesting to have a school that didn't have a football team, but you had a world-class choir. That's pretty cool. It is interesting. My daughter who is 13 going on 28, um, is sings in the choir at her school and it has given her an appreciation for all kinds of music and arrangement. And it surprised me because I never really saw that in her. But when we listen to Anything from Michael Jackson to Harry Styles, she will, she'll talk about breakdowns of chords, and it's it's it does it makes you appreciative, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean it it it, it really does, and I think that um, you know I, I don't know people don't sing that much anymore. I mean, it's, for Catholics at church, like at least the kind of Catholic I am, I sort of Irish Catholic, like we never were, you know, we weren't like the like, I'd walk past the Protestant church and you just hear these booming voices. We kind of like. Yeah quietly you know hum along or whatever <laughs> um but yeah i mean i mean singing you i don't know like you, you watch like soccer games or stuff like that and the people break into song it's 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 it, there's something there's something that that hits human beings very deeply in it mm -hmm. i agree you just mentioned your irish catholic and we mentioned the queen and we have so many topics we could discuss with you because you write about so many different things, which I find really fascinating. But before we started the record, you had mentioned that this this Queen's passing is is a little different for you, the way you perceive it, because you're Irish. How, how uh, and you're working on a piece uh, uh, surrounding this topic. What What's your angle? You know, I, I kind of, as it became clear uh, the other day in the morning that this is probably the way that this was going, I was really sort of saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly saddened by the death of anyone. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly moved by the sadness of the British people and, and so many people around the world. But, you know, I, I also grew up in a family and an environment that really hated England. I, I mean, hated it, right? Like it, in my Irish Catholic family in Philly, the only thing we hated more than England was the Dallas Cowboys. Maybe. Um, you know, it's like that level of... Um, Wow. That, and it, it took me years and years to, to kind of work through that. And it really wasn't until my, I wouldn't read British history. I wouldn't read British books. I loved Irish literature. I just thought the British stuff was trash. I made a small exception for Shakespeare on, based on this theory that he was a secret Catholic. But at a certain <laughs> point, I realized that like the disdain was hurting me. Um, that my inability to let go of this hatred was really getting in the way of me learning about my own country and my own background and my, you know, everything. Um, and so I had to let that go. And so whereas I, I think 20 years ago, I might have felt more spiteful about the death of the queen. Um, now, look, I, I won't I, I can't say that I feel moved in the way that so many other people do, because I just don't. Um, right. But but I I do have admiration for aspects of, of British history and society and for the queen herself that would have been impossible 20 years ago. Wow. How did you go about, first of all, the, the fact that you made that decision and you said, this is keeping me from, you know, this is getting in my own way, this hatred. So that decision is a wise one. So you'd gain some wisdom probably, which comes through maturity and experience and all those things. But then what was your next move? How did you start to, 
not, not only let it go, but allow yourself to, to learn a little bit more. I mean, I think I, I think I literally just felt the the um, intellectual box that I had put myself in that that I was really limiting my own ability to understand the world. Um, I, I, I voraciously read literature and philosophy, but I would read, you know, French and German philosophy and and you mm-hmm. know French and Russian literature. And for a while, you know, since there's you know it's, it's quite a smorgasbord, you know, for a while that worked out. But at a certain point, I kept running into these blind spots in in my own knowledge, just things that I wasn't understanding. And it became clear that I needed to better educate myself on um uh on, on British history, on British literature and poetry and 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 all of those things. And so I just kind of decided to do it. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I love it. It, it, A a thoughtful decision and and a really good decision. Um, You are one of those voices that made yourself known about COVID. You wrote a book called Charade. What prompted you to pick up the pen and really not just write a piece, but write a book about this? Um. Really, the decision to write the book came in in June of 2020, um, when it started to become clear to me that the contemporary history of what was going on was wrong. Um, and this is this is really still a problem, right? Because everything that you saw on CNN, the New York Times, you know, from all these places, it was wrong. Um, but it's still 20, 30 years from now, when people go back to the original source material, they're going to go back to that wrong stuff, right? That That's not going to get corrected. And so it really was important to me. And I was writing about it at the same time. I was writing both for the Federalist and the New York Post at the time. So I was writing, a, you know, probably two, three columns a week on it at the same time that I was writing the book. And I just wanted the book to be a place where the real history, what really happened was there. And so it's broken down into 12 chapters, each of which is a myth um, about COVID. So uh, there, w- there was a myth that the White House and the Trump administration did nothing in January and February. Just blatantly not true. With, with, Correct. Which, I, I, I'm, I'm, I couldn't agree more with that. I, I, how did that. How did people get away with that when stuff I, was happening? Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 it's amazing. You know, th- there was this myth that we were all in it together, which was, you know, Clearly just a fantastical lie. You know, there, there was the myth that, you know, having major protests during COVID is fine, but you can't go to a baseball game, right? All of these things I was very worried would be forgotten about or that the history would start to be rewritten. And, and I mean, that's absolutely happening before our eyes, right? Yeah. You have, you have the teachers union 
saying that they were the ones who really, really, really wanted to open the schools. And it was Trump's fault. I mean, this is this is through the looking glass stuff. Yes. And yes. that's why. So my book ends basically on Election Day of 2020. So it really only takes place in 2020. And so what you have in it really is just like I said, what really happened throughout those months. And every once in a while, I just kind of look back through it. And it's it's unbelievable. I mean, here in New York, just you know, remembering like walking around Midtown Manhattan, no cars. I know. No people on the street. I mean, it was insane. <laughs> yeah. Outdoors. I, 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 one of my best friends is Al Michaels. There's a name drop for you, but <laughs> you know, hell, I worked with the guy for so long and, and, and we're tight. And I, and when he, <laughs> he went to the coast, he lives in, in Southern California, went to the coast and took a picture of basically the ocean and the beach and the park, and no one was there. And he said, we're not allowed to be here. And he took that picture and, you know, I'm sure it was very uh, undercover. No, I mean, but, but think about how crazy that's that is. It's nuts. It's nuts. I, I mean, it's like, I don't know if you remember Arrested Development and like, who's the ones and the mom saying like, you know, he's not allowed to go in the ocean. And it, it, it was, I mean, it was, it was utterly, these rules were so nonsensical and so ridiculous. And, and patently so, like, obviously so. Yeah. Um, but our media fell into this lockstep where, like, if Fauci said it, that's it, man. That's it. Look look no further. Ask no questions. If you do ask questions, you're killing grandma. Um, and, and people went along with it. But, yeah. And that's the scary part, right? Because, listen, this is not the, – the final chapter of my book is about my fear of the long-term repercussions of this. Because this is not going to be the last public health emergency, right? right? They're going to call climate change a public health emergency. There are cities in this country that have already declared racism a public health emergency. And yeah. we've created a precedent where once the government says public health emergency, Katie bar the door, man. They can do yeah. anything they want, anything. Yeah. No, no constitution, no rights, just obey. I really hope that books like yours, Charade, and and the voices of other people, and I've tried to amplify quite a few of them because I'm I'm with you. I thought it, it was terrifying that this whole entire country and and other parts of the world as well, but here in the United States where we have codified freedoms, right? right. We're just we're just stripped. And and you're right. The part that pissed me off the most was. God forbid you ask a question. You will be canceled if you ask a question. If you're curious, if you say, are we sure this method of, of medication doesn't work? Oh, my God, you idiot. You denier. You. It was like, whoa, wait, I'm just asking a question here. And that, to me, was terrifying. And I think it was exacerbated. And I don't know if you feel this way. By the George Floyd riots. I live here in Minnesota we saw it all. Um, and so it, that whole, you know, again, it was this explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was if you don't sing from the same hymnal, you might as well just go go in your house and never come out and never present yourself to the world again. And those I think that the the, the fact that those two things were going on at once. And as you said, the the juxtaposition of these protests and looting 
and setting buildings on fire in downtown Minneapolis next to you can't go to church, even if you all stand outside and sing, was insane to me. And and so many people accepted it. I mean, I, I remember being convinced it was over. I mean, I, I remember talking to colleagues and other journalists when the when the protest started and, and we were all just like, OK, like, obviously, this has to be it. Yeah. Right. Because there is no way to logically let this go on. And like I said, you know, not have a, a Yankees game at half capacity. And somehow it kept going. Um, but, you know, I, I think. To that point of questioning, this is a broader problem that we have in society where there is an attitude um, across a lot of fields and a lot of disciplines where questioning or speech is viewed as harmful, as yeah. dangerous, as violent, uh, you know, yes. as, as an act. And it, 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 it's, it's really a problem because not only did it keep people from being able to ask sane questions about COVID, right? It, it stopped in, in a story that I recently wrote about where the, the, the president of the American Historical Association had written an article about, you know, an article for their magazine questioning whether we should be looking at the past through the eyes of the present, right? Something called teleological presentism, basically saying critical race theory, things like that. They look too much at the past through our current lens. That's all mm -hmm. he was saying. He, he wound up getting pilloried and writing an apology where he apologized for the harm that he, what harm? It's yeah. a historical journal. You made people think yeah. about things that they didn't want to, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. And, yeah. But it goes even farther, right? Now you have uh, Democrats in, in this election who are refusing to debate Republicans. Yeah. Because, why? Because they say, if I get on a debate stage with that person, that's going to legitimize their dangerous <laughs> rhetoric. It, it, it's a problem, and it's, a, it's, it's an increasing problem throughout our entire yeah. society. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's it's so important to continue to point it out and to say – what are we nuts? I mean, are we, are we going that crazy in the freest nation on earth? Are we really going this crazy? And, and it's, I, I, I just feel like it, we've, like you said, this is through the looking glass stuff and it's terrifying to me. You wrote a piece as well about, and this is just brand new, um, San Francisco's new drug laws under which nobody can be arrested is a death sentence for the city and the addicts it abandons. This is another interesting thing. And it's, it's again, Illinois, I think, is now saying we're not going to have bail in the state of Illinois. Yeah. We're just, you're going to get arrested and then you're going to get out. And so what's going on in San Francisco, which is the city my father grew up in, and he's turning over in his grave and I know it and it's, it's awful. What are they doing exactly there? And, 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 what the hell are they thinking? <laughs> so I guess the, the good news, um, and you have to ask yourself how this took so long, but the good news is that Mayor London Breed and, and the officials who run San Francisco have now decided that having completely legal open air drug markets in the middle of the city is a bad idea. Okay. Who knew, right? I, I mean, so, so <laughs> they finally figured so, that right, out. So they, they, that's good, right? That's progress. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, what we need to do is we're going to we're going to ask for suggestions from 21 different departments of the city to see how we can fix this problem 
but without arresting anyone. And so you have these solutions like, you know, d- d- drug sites where people can come and basically they have lifeguards there or whatever. But it's still basically an open air drug market, right? You, you have the idea of like monitoring these people with like ankle bracelets and, and stuff. And it, it, it's infuriating because it's obvious what works. What works is arresting people who sell dangerous drugs out in, in, in the middle of the street, in the open, right? Mayor Eric Adams hasn't been fantastic here in New York. It didn't, you know, I, I live in, in Brooklyn and Mayor Adams has disappointed me in a lot of ways. But one mm-hmm. thing that he has done is when he took office, the previous mayor, de Blasio, really had us going on that direction. As I walked around Midtown, I would see the just open drug dealing that's stopped for the most part. And I think it is because the mayor has said to the cops, look, if you see that, you got to get, because it's everything. When I walked around San Francisco last year, it, it destroys everything. There's no legitimate business. There's no actual commerce. There's no real civilization. It's just these sort of zombies wandering mm-hmm. around these tent lined streets. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I, I tell the story sometimes I, I, I went there and I, I was, I was doing a story for Fox and, and, I got back to my hotel room and I started writing and I wrote the first two graphs and, and I read them back to I said, this is not brutal enough. This, this doesn't nearly describe. And I tried again and it was like, nope. It took me three times to write something that even began to capture how horrible and miserable this situation is. And, and these progressive leaders in the city there, they just have no answer for it. <laughs> because they're afraid. Because they're afraid to be adults. And, yeah. and do what's right for the, they, they see civilization is, is a word you, you used a moment ago. No civilization. There is no civility because I think they look at civility as a, um, archaic way of life mm-hmm. and that, you know, it's, it's near anarchy there. Even after getting rid of, uh, Chesa Boudin, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's still just awful. You mentioned New York and Eric Adams, and then you mentioned a name, Bill de Blasio. When we come back, I want to get your thoughts on Bill de Blasio and Brian Stelter being hired by Harvard's Kennedy School. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Oh, my gosh. So we're sitting here in mid to late September with the stock market making us want to throw up, right? I, I wanted to throw up in the last 24 hours I'm trying to stay calm. There are short-term issues I got to deal with. There are long-term issues I got to deal with. Some of the short-term ones aren't that pretty. Fill in your gas tank, <laughs> buying the groceries, doing those things that make you go, wow, is inflation bad? It's high It's and it's sitting high. But then there's the long-term play that you can make. And for that, you might want to consider gold and silver and legacy precious metals. They're the only company I trust when investing in gold and silver. Remember 2008? You know, kind of the last time we saw a horrendous, that's the best way to describe it, a crash. Well, those who invested in gold saw huge gains and others just lost their retirements. Gold is a great long-term play. It's a hedge against inflation. It protects against a weakening dollar. And legacy precious metals are the ones to talk to about buying gold. You don't need to invest a ton. You just need to call them and talk to them and get your questions answered. Here's the number, 866-528-1903, 866 528 
1903 or go to legacypminvestments.com legacypminvestments.com So I was in New York yesterday and one of the topics I was discussing with some colleagues was Brian Stelter who was let go from CNN because his show wasn't successful and in fact his show covered up a lot of stuff like what you do air what stories you do choose to air and the ones you don't say the same things about you what your agenda is and cnn did not cover a lot of stuff in his show that was important media coverage so brian stelter let's get gets let go and almost immediately gets hired by harvard Right in the wake of Bill de Blasio, one of the worst mayors the world has ever seen, getting hired by Harvard to discuss threats to democracy. What's happening at Harvard University? I, I mean, it, it's it, it's amazing, right? I mean, b- both in in both of those cases, it's amazing not just that they got hired by Harvard, but what they've been hired to do, right? <laughs> Stelter is basically there. To, to be like, a, if you remember, like Nina Jankowicz and the Board of Disinformation, right? He's basically <laughs> yes. there to, to, to do that, to, to educate kids about how to spot disinformation. When I mean, he was the leading cheerleader at CNN of disinformation about Russian collusion, about yeah. COVID. I, I mean, just run down the list. So it, yeah. it it really is kind of remarkable. And and de Blasio kind of the same thing. Like he's going to be there to talk about, well, here's how you promote good governance. And he absolutely is the worst <laughs> mayor New York City has ever had. And that is a competitive category. I mean, it, yeah, you know. it is. So, I, look, I, I think that in in these elite enclaves, in the newsrooms at Harvard University, right in 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 the upper echelons of the Democratic Party, they understand America very differently um, than people who actually spend time in America. Um, they think America is a deeply, deeply racist place, um, which, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time all over the country just interviewing people, mm-hmm. talking to people. It's a big part of my work. And, and that's just false. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a lie. I mean, you know, and but because they believe that and, and because they believe that all inequality is, is, is a result of either racism or, or the evils of the capitalist system or, or all of these things, that is their only answer. And, and it goes right back to San Francisco thinking that if they just sort of defund the police and don't arrest drug dealers, everything will work out. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's a disaster. But look, I, I guess, you know, they're going to get a lot of money. They're going to, you know, be up in Cambridge. And I, I think for those people, I, believing that narrative doesn't harm them in any way. It only harms other people. It only harms other people. That's that's the worst part about it for me is is seeing these people put on some sort of pedestal for which there really should be no room for them. They, they Especially given the topics they're discussing, it's it, it's astonishing to me. And, it, you know, when you talk about the, the that group of elites, sees America differently. And I do too. And you know what? I had to grow out of my elitism because I grew up in Southern California and I was such a believer that the left coast was the only coast. And we were just all so super cool. And then I went to Cal Berkeley and I thought, of course, that that was the best education anyone could get and yada, yada, yada. I have since 
sent my diploma back to that university <laughs> because I have grown in wisdom to see that it is one of those places that just has this singular sort of train of thought and no diversity of thought or very little diversity of thought that is honored, that is accepted. If it's there, it's, it's hiding. Like so many people are hiding right now from asking questions, from posting stuff that they'd like to post because they're scared. So uh, it, it, it took me, I think, moving out of California, living in all kinds of levels of, you know, just scrapping money together to pay my rent because I was doing radio in some, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina, and, and just meeting people from the South, from the Midwest. I travel all over the country for my work like you do and, and for my previous job. And I just, I just, my eyes start to get opened, you know, it's a game changer. And I, yeah, it, it is, it is. And I, I, there are smart people that I know, David, that are saying, well, we should elect presidents with the popular vote, not the electoral college, because I mean, that's, there's more people in the popular and they don't understand what is so genius about the electoral college. That scares me. These are like educated people, but they don't, they, they somehow they can't see it. I, I, and, and then I think, well, they must think I'm crazy. Do you ever feel like that? Like the, the rest of the world thinks you're crazy. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I guess they, they probably do. Um, but <laughs> I, you know, but to, to, to your point about that exposure to flyover country or, or mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, the first time I really did a reporting trip, I think it was 2018 or early 2019 and, or maybe the middle of any, it doesn't matter. Um, at that time, I, I, I was still sort of, you know, struggling to get a foothold in journalism. And I was, I would occasionally work for my friend's moving company. And he had a truck that had to go out to, out to Arkansas and back. So he was letting me do it at a leisurely pace. And I said to, to the Federalist where I was writing, I said, you know, I'm going to just interview people. And it was really the first time I did that kind of thing. And every night I would find a place. First, it was West, West Virginia, then this l wonderful little town called uh, Vandalia in Illinois that I'd never heard of, but that I really, anyway, just all these, I find just the most off the beaten track place. My worry was, why would these people want to talk to some journalist from Brooklyn? Like, how am I yeah. going to get these people to even open up to me at all? I, I couldn't shut them up. <laughs> I, I couldn't. Be because they're so aware of the fact that they're not being heard, that they're not yeah. being listened to. Yeah. That the moment they found out, wait a minute, you want to, I'll never forget sitting out, smoking cigarettes and having some beers with this family outside the hotel somewhere in Missouri. And they were staying at the hotel, I think, because their son had just graduated from boot camp. And, I, you know, I couldn't, I could not, there's a highway, just trucks warm, but I could not have been farther from Brooklyn. I mean, geographically, I could have been in California, but you know what I mean. Well, I know and, what you mean. And that they were the first people who really explained to me the appeal of Trump. And I got it. And I understood yeah. it. Um, you know, a journalist. How did they does, explain it to you? What did they say that that do you, was there a particular thing or was it? I mean, it kind of comes down to he listens to them. Right. And he's responsive to them. And I think especially the Republican Party, and this is something that I've written about a lot. I mean, the, the Republican Party throughout most of my lifetime, certainly up through Mitt Romney, their basic message was, you know, people like like Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney the message was, I'm very smart. I'm very competent. 
send me to Washington and I'll do what I know is best for you. Right. That was their message. Donald Trump's message was, I know how to get things done. I know what you want. If you send me to Washington, I'll do not what I think is best, but what you think is best. And, mm -hmm. and that really hadn't happened um, for Republican voters in a very, very long time. And, and that's sort of what they explained to me was that they understood he understood their priorities. And, um, you know, one of the journalists I respect most in the world is um, Selena Zito, who writes for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and a bunch of other places. And Selena was the Selena was the one who, during the 2016 campaign, coined the phrase that Trump supporters take him seriously, but not literally. And his detractors take him literally, but not seriously. Right. And the way that she got that was she was the one I learned how to do this from, you know, and this is what this is what reporters and columnists and even anchors, I think, need to do. Like, go get in the rest of the country and talk to people. Yeah. You'll learn so much. Well, remember after Trump won and everyone was shocked and they said, oh, my gosh, our polls got it wrong. We got it wrong. We never saw this coming. We got to spend more time in middle America and mm -hmm. talk to middle America. And we got to be more open minded and go be curious. That lasted about six days. And, you know, we're back to normal. I was getting on a plane to New York, sitting next to a guy from South Dakota. And he said, uh, so what are you doing in New York? And I said, I'm doing a, a panel show. And he said, wherever you're doing this show, please tell them that there's more to America than New York and L.A. That's it. And I said, yep, that's no, absolutely. Know, and that's it. And, and I think the other appeal of Trump when he got elected was he wasn't afraid mm -hmm. to say anything. And we have been so um, muffled by political correctness for so long. And if you say anything that even sounds remotely against the you know, empathetic, sympathetic grain, you're an asshole. So he kind of said, I'll be the asshole for you. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just say whatever you, you're thinking, I'll say it. It's a, it's a key part of his appeal. People forget, um, how much fighting against political correctness was really front and center in his 2016 yeah. campaign. I mean, he was constantly yeah. saying political correctness is killing us right now. He's moved over to wokeness as I guess all of us have, but, um, yeah, that was central. Listen, the 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 post Trump and by post Trump I don't mean that he won't be president I mean the the post Trump phenomenon um, conservative movement in America has there, there's four basic things that everybody agrees on that that he really kind of brought to to the fore um, there we we have to have a strong border uh, we have to have um, energy independence right there's there's no question about that um, we have to have policing and, and law and order. And we have to fight the culture war, right? We can't get barreled over by people who demand that we say a, a, a little boy can turn into a little girl in reality because they say so. Yeah. You, 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 you know, you, you can't. And whether it's Trump or DeSantis or whoever it is, the, the Republican politicians who are going to be successful are the ones who hone in on those four basic issues. Um, and, and, and I think you're already seeing them have success. That is the new right. That is the core yeah. of the new right. And it, and it's the new right that is being just hammered and attacked and even having the FBI weaponized against the fact that a president of the United States is calling this and his, you know, some of his secretaries of whatever are calling this domestic terror. 
Like if you go speak up at your kid's school board meeting because you don't like what's being taught, you uh, you might be dangerous, you know? Yeah, You're using it's, that it's voice scary. in a danger. It's like what you said before, that people feel harmed by words and by language. I just, that is terrifying. And, and I, I, I'm afraid, and I'd like to get your take on this. It, it almost feels like the toothpaste is out of the tube, and I don't know how we get it back in. Are you more optimistic than I am in that regard? I, I don't. I don't think I am. Um, it, it, it was. I think maybe a, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, one of my editors at the Daily Mail reached out and said, "Hey, do you want to write a piece about how we really need to clean house at the FBI? Like, make, including Christopher Ray, the whole thing. This has gotten out of hand." And I got the message, and I had to think for a minute because I thought to myself, "I, I, I really was concerned. Like, I, I don't want to to stoke fear among the American people of, right. of the FBI." I mean, I, I don't, right? And I think the average FBI agent is, is probably uh, loves the country, doing a great job. But when I sat and I thought about Russian collusion, Peter Strzok, the Steele dossier, the, the going after the parents, right? Now the, the, the Mar-a-Lago raid, all of this. I said, look, how can I deny this at this point? How can mm -hmm. I deny that this is out of hand? And, and something does need to be done. So I wound up writing the article. And, and, and no, I'm not more optimistic than you. I, I think that at least at the leadership level, the FBI is completely out of control and something needs to be done. That's uh, a, a bold, you're not alone in that thinking, but it, it, it does, it, it, for some reason, people are afraid to say it out loud, right? Because they'll sound uh, like conspiracy theorists and the rest. But the, here, here's the problem. We've become conspiracy theorists because there have been conspiracies, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's it like what what else? Do, you're not telling us the truth. So what are we left with? To th You know, you want us to believe stuff that isn't true. And you you stifled the Hunter Biden laptop and all of this yeah. stuff. And yet you still want us to trust you. I, I you know, and, and I, that level of trust in the media, in academia, in all of these institutions is on such a downward spiral. I, I, I wonder if there is a hero somewhere. It, it, I, the, my fear of Donald Trump running again is how divisive he is. And even some of his most ardent supporters think, you know, this is going to be ugly if it happens. Oh, it will be. I, I mean, no, I, I was talking to some people about this yesterday. I mean, if, if we end up with basically like a Trump DeSantis primary or whatever, Trump's going to do what he always did. He, he only has yeah. one, one style. I mean, it's like, you right. know, if you're the LA Lakers, you're going to fast break, right? I, I mean, yes. it's, it's, you're, you're going to, you're going to do what you do. Um, you know, look, ultimately that's going to be up to the voters. And like I said, that what's, what's new in the Republican party is that this is a party that's responsive to voters, not a party that's responsive to think tanks in the chamber of commerce. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I have some of those fears about the, the divisiveness, but I, I, I think you're right that we need to be calling out the lies you know, you brought up the Hunter Biden laptop. I saw a poll yesterday that showed 50% of Democrats today believe that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation. 50% <laughs> of Democrats, the, these bells don't get unrung, Right. And, and, and look, I'm glad to see, I'm never glad when anybody gets fired. I didn't, I wasn't happy to see Brian Stelter lose his job. I guess, you know, he landed on his feet and, you know, or John Harwood or these guys who CNN 
um, is letting go. But I guess it is somewhat heartening that, that CNN wants to uh, get back to something more along the lines of, of straight news. But I still mm-hmm. think that there's a whole host of underlying assumptions in our news. I'll, I'll have a piece today, actually, at, up at Fox News about that BYU incident, right? And how over and over again, and every, the Jesse Smollett and the NASCAR news, every time the the media like steps on the rake, it's like, how can this be happening? The reason that it's happening is that their underlying assumptions about, again, this America that they never visit are completely wrong. So when they hear these stories, they say, well, of course, it's much more likely that this happened than that it didn't. Um, and, And those underlying assumptions are what need to change. It's not just a question of being a better journalist or better practices. It's, it's that underlying idea of the people, of, of who the people are, of what this country is that, that really does need to change. Well, I hope those people who believe in, still believe in the best of this country really step out and vote because I mean, it, it's, you know, that is where it's going to matter. And the sad part about that is, we, <laughs> as much as the Democrat, I'm laughing because it's so insane. I, I, David, I just, I, I, I want to cry sometimes. So I laugh that the, so many of the Democrats who want to call you an election denier have themselves been election deniers and they forget that little truth. And so if things don't go the way they want in November, you know, first of all, voters are going to have a hard time trusting the process. And then you're going to have people say, well, he's an illegitimate senator or he's an illegitimate governor. He did not really win. I'm Stacey Abrams. And of course, I should have won. So therefore, I'm not going to give a concession speech. That kind of stuff is going to continue as long. And that to me is this hypocrisy is so I hate to say it, but it's borderline evil. And it's because when they do it, they knowingly divide. And I I just think it's it could be the death knell. And, and I, and I, I just, that's, that's why I started this podcast. <laughs> just, yeah, no, I, I, had look, to, I had to be able to speak. The, the hypocrisy is staggering. I mean, Benny Thompson, who is the chair of the January 6th committee, you know, that, that primetime TV show that they, they yeah. keep running, the chair of this voted not to certify the 2004 election. Jeepers. I, okay. But, but <laughs> And that's fine. You know, and now every Republican who didn't vote to certify the 2020 election is, you know, a semi-fascist extremist who, you know, ought to go to jail or something. It's it it really is just unbelievable. And he's not the only one. I think Jamie Raskin voted not to certify in 2016. Stacey Abrams, obviously, like still thinks she's the governor. So, yeah, yeah, I I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy the hypocrisy is bad. And I, you know, I, I have some friends who say, you know, it's not hypocrisy, it's hierarchy. Um, and that it really is the point that the, the point is to say like, okay, you, you, we're telling you this, you don't think it's true. It doesn't matter. We're the ones in power. It doesn't matter. We can, we can lie to you all you, all, all we want. What are you going to do? Well, hopefully we do what we need to do. I really feel like we're at a tipping point. And I, you know, I, I, I've got these kids. You've got your 12 year old son. I've got my two kids. I want them to inherit uh, the freedoms that allowed us to have great opportunities in this country. And I, I just, I admire you and I want people to follow you at Blue Box Dave on Twitter. You can read him all over the place. It's really pretty impressive. And it's, as you can see, he's, 
He doesn't hold back. I, I really appreciate you joining me. I hope we can do it again because everything you write is is interesting. It's compelling. It it's it's worth reading. And you know, there there aren't millions of you out there. And so I appreciate what you write. And uh, hopefully we can do this again. I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the kind words and thanks for having me. Yeah. You bet. He is David Marcus at Blue Box Dave. Again, you can read him in so many places. And it, like I said, I, I like listening to independent voices who are not afraid. And that's what we want to do here at Sideline Sanity. So be brave, do good, and read a bunch of David Marcus. Well, Sideline Sanity, we are very proud to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals, and we're joined by Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. Charles, we are hearing now that this is not transitional inflation. This is not a bump in the road. This inflation is going to be here a while. What, what, does, that, what does that tell you? You know, that's the scary thing. Um, I think, you know, economies and, and, and such like that, they can deal with small jars. We have a, a unique situation. We had a Fed that waited much too long to react to the situation, calling inflation transitory for a year when everyone knew it wasn't. But more importantly than that, coming out now saying this is going to be here. This is long term. This is not short term. We're going to have elevated rates for the long term. And why that gets really scary is that means the cost of doing business is going to be elevated for years, which means the cost of goods are going to be elevated for years, which means if companies can't make enough money, they will go out of business. This is why we, we hear some of your bigger companies are already talking about layoffs. So it's a unique situation. The Fed found themselves in a very bad place. And they reacted way too slow. And this is why we're at where we're at. So if I'm an investor, then what's why do I want gold and silver in my portfolio? What what will that do for me? You know, that, that's a great question. And that's a question we get a lot. And and really what gold and silver do, um, they act as the hedge against the dollar weakness. They act as a hedge against the other markets. And we know that the Dow and, and all of your markets, all your indices are, are, are pulling back, right? That's not the issue. It's not what's already happened. It's what's yet to come. And that's where we, we need to prepare. So depending on who you listen to and, and the research that you do, you know, there are case studies are saying expect to see another 25, 20 to 25% pullback in your equities markets based on interest rates and loans and, and the bond markets they're suffering as well. No one's going out to buy bonds knowing that they're going to be um, an increased return on them in three months. It makes no sense. So that leaves you in a position of what to do with your money and how to protect yourself. This is where gold and silver come in. This is why we say this is a long-term play. You buy it, you forget about it, let it do its, its job. And its job is to go up over time as the dollar gets weaker, as the purchasing power gets less, gold and silver increase. It protects that purchasing power. That's the great thing about it. And there's your bottom line and why you need to call Legacy Precious Metals or go download their investor's guide at LegacyPreciousMetals.com. Charles, it's always good to talk to you because these are nerve-wracking times for people. You know, it, it's just the fact of the matter is, 
as we were told by the the Fed chair, there's going to be some pain. So if people know that they've got something solid sitting in their investment portfolio, I think they're going to feel a little bit better, right? Absolutely. And, and we, you know, when we look at the actions that have happened just recently, I mean, the Fed has taken a very unique stance and they've done something very um, extraordinary. Three quarters of a basis points raises months in a row. That's one of the largest raises you've ever seen in the Fed through the history of the Fed. And it's not just once. One time is shocking. Here we are on the third month now. And we'll probably do another half a half a basis point next month or, or later this month, possibly even three quarters of a point. So when you look at that and you say that number is going to grow to where the Fed interest rates will be about 5%, unheard of. That means the interest rate to you and I, if that's what banks pay to borrow money, we're going to see, you know, credit cards will probably be over 28, 30% again. You're going to see home loans coming in 9, 10, possibly even 11%. And it's it's a scary time. And this is why we say, okay, know that it's coming. Don't be afraid. You You now are aware. So now you can protect yourself. And that's what we help people do. Don't be afraid. Prepare. Just prepare yourself. And like I say every day, I trust Legacy Precious Metals when it comes to investing in gold and silver. So go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Charles and his group can answer any and all of your questions. Charles, thank you so much. My pleasure as always. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.